0: Please join with me in reading Psalm 40. To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps secure, he put a new song in my mouth I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. So we are at the middle point of the season of Lent, and the purpose of the season of Lent is not to atone for one's sins. It is not a season in which we become morose and introspective. It's not a season in which we become sorrowful of sin unto despair. It is a proper use of the season of Lent indeed every day as a Christian to mourn one's sin, to see the nature of sin, and to repent from it and turn to God in righteousness. And so the point of this season is not simply to understand the nature of sin, but it is to prepare our hearts such that as we approach Holy Week and Easter, we can understand what's going on at the cross. Uh, So much of what we understand of the cross has uh, helped us in deep ways. And yet, I would submit that the Gospels have a particular purpose and that the Psalms especially have a different purpose. The Psalms really and the prophets have a different purpose in showing us some of the spiritual dimensions of what is going on at the cross and I'm, I'm convinced that this psalm actually presents a unique aspect of Jesus Christ and the person who he is, that is, who he is in his nature, who he is as himself, that is not captured by the Gospels. It's only briefly referred to or alluded to. God gave us stories, he gave us songs, he gave us narratives, and each of them uh, they all together speak to a composite picture of who Jesus Christ is. It was said during the Sunday school hour concerning Jesus Christ and his miracles that if every one of them were to be written down, the world could not contain the books. Likewise, the scriptures present that Jesus Christ is Excellent in his person. That is, he is excellent in his character and his nature and how he carries his heart before the Father. And his riches or the excellencies of him are unsearchable. What does that mean? It means you cannot exhaustively know the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, when we examine these passages, we're not simply, we're not attempting to get saved all over again. We're not attempting to revisit the cross and learn nothing else. We are attempting to, by the word of God and by the aid of the Holy Spirit helping us see the word of God, we are attempting to perceive part of the greatness of the nature of Christ, and specifically his work on the cross. We know that Christ persisted in sinlessness, and it's important to understand that even through his suffering, he did not despise his father, nor did he doubt his father. That's really what we're going to be looking at today, is that Jesus Christ, while suffering, dies in a state of perfect trust to the Father, that the Father will vindicate him. And I really think that that is the aim of this psalm. So uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been looking at psalms and how they speak about Jesus Christ. And that really is our goal, is to see the faith of Jesus Christ in this psalm. And it's actually, I, I, I believe that we can see it quite clearly if we take notice of the structure of the psalm. So first we're going to be looking at a idea that there are actually two psalms presented in this psalm. And we're gonna get a little inception-y, if you will. There's a psalm within this psalm, and I think it's quite clear, I believe you'll be able to see it as we look, but it's really presenting a structure or a organization to this song. That is going to lead us to a really good conclusion at the end. I want to look at Christ as the preacher of this psalm. We looked at this the last three weeks, that all of these psalms which are written, sometimes it's the voice of David, but by the Spirit of God, it often can be understood as Christ himself speaking by the Spirit through David. And so I want to look at how this is actually, these are the words of Jesus, not simply the words of David. I want to look at the mighty deed of God, notice that is singular, and how that one deed is the source of, or the fountain of, or the, the, the thing from which all of the deeds of God issue forth. That is, in this psalm, we see that the wonderful deeds of God are praised and glorified, but I'm convinced that actually the center of this psalm is talking about one particular deed, as you just heard in the book of Hebrews. I want to look at the nature of Christ's suffering, that he was surrounded by evil, not simply just on a human level as he was surrounded by the Pharisees and the Romans, but also as he was surrounded by evil spiritually, becoming and receiving the guilt for sin, which he makes an atonement for on the cross. And that this is actually a great mercy of God to show us this, that we might be captivated by our beautiful Redeemer. You see, it's not enough to know that Christ's crucifixion and death opens up a way of life to you, and yet, not ever probe exactly how it took place or exactly how it was opened up. That is, the Hebrews presents that through the veil of Christ's flesh, a new way has been opened up. That it was necessary that he offer up his body completely, and that that offering had spiritual realities that attended to it. It was not simply a, as the Greeks call, a thanatos, a bodily death. It also was a death in which his soul suffered and was overcome, not in such a way as to torment him. We're not talking about the torments of hell. That's not when we when we say the Apostles' Creed, we do not say that Jesus went to hell, the place of eternal damnation. We say that he went to the place of the dead. He He fully died. And we're going to see what He encountered in his death. And then finally, as these last few verses of this psalm present, we're going to look at the faith of Jesus Christ as he is dying, that he was faithful to the end. So, understanding where we're going, I want to look at the nature of this psalm. According to the Hebrew writer, his quotation of this psalm is is invoking the psalm as an idea. Whenever you see in the New Testament, whether it be Jesus Christ, one of the apostles, or the writings in the epistles, whenever they refer to a verse of the Old Testament, more often than not, they are speaking to everything that's going on. If you remember any of the crucifixion videos or Jesus videos that you might have seen in the last few years, you might remember when Jesus is on the cross and he says those words in Aramaic. Usually they don't put them in English. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which basically is a quotation of the center verse of Psalm 22. And what Jesus is doing there is he's telling his audience both the gospel writers and those who were present that day, that what Psalm 22 was speaking about is happening right here, that he is being forsaken by the father for a time. And that, that, That that quotation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just to intend to invoke that one verse. It's supposed to allow the reader to understand all of Psalm 22 is coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And when you go and look at Psalm 22, as we're going to do in a few weeks, you'll see that quite clearly. The point is, when the Hebrew writer quotes this massive chunk of this psalm, which we actually talked about I believe two or three weeks ago, when we were looking at Saul and David, that this psalm is actually, the the entire thing is speaking about Jesus Christ. So this entire psalm is a summary or a foretelling. That is, it tells beforehand by the Spirit of God It is a prophecy about the spiritual nature of the crucifixion and the mercy of Jesus Christ in his Completed work. So every significant aspect of Christ's person and work is put forth in this psalm, as we're going to see very quickly. By reading this psalm carefully, especially noticing some introductory elements, I believe that we can see a great pattern in this psalm that hints to and strongly suggests something about Jesus Christ. And the beauty of his crucifixion. So, before we in- look at the entire psalm, as we've we've briefly covered in summary form, I want to look at just the first verse in this psalm. This is an introduction and a summary of the entire psalm itself. Think about it like this: uh, Whenever you read a book, the opening chapters or the opening paragraphs often tell you about the entire book. If you've ever read a Tale of Two Cities the author, Charles Dickens, summarizes the, the atmosphere of the book and also what the book is going to be about. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? And, and the whole book is filled with a mixture of turmoil and strife and intrigue and plot And that is exactly what this this psalm writer is doing. He is summarizing the entire psalm in this verse. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And if you go through the rest of the psalm, as we've heard and as we're going to see in detail, this psalm is really about the suffering of this one and his faithful persistence in crying to the Lord and the Lord's hearing of him. This psalm therefore focuses on the confidence of Jesus Christ in the rescue of his father, that he is confident that his father will vindicate him. Jesus trusts in his father, and the father lovingly hears the son. It's exactly like if you've ever seen Russian nesting dolls. There's a Russian word, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but they actually have a real name for them. It's a cultural phenomenon. If you've ever seen them, they're often sometimes... Each doll that's inside of the other doll will be a different thing. But also, sometimes they just have a ever smaller doll, and they all look alike. I believe that's what's going on in this psalm, that the first verse is a summary, and the first three verses are, again, a summary with more detail. And then it moves into a completely new song, as we're going to see. He says, I waited patiently on the Lord. He drew me up, verse 2 and set my feet upon the rock. Verse three, he put a new song in my mouth. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. If you took just those three verses, this is a summary of the entire covenant of redemption. That Jesus Christ is the one who waits patiently on the Lord, that the Lord hears him, that he draws him up from the miry pit being an allegorical symbol of death. He sets his feet upon the rock. That is, he brings him to life and From that place, the gospel goes forth into the nations. They fear the Lord. That's one of the primary focuses of Acts, the fear of the Lord that comes on Jew and Gentile-like. They put their trust in him and they worship him. The world is transformed by the faith and confidence. See see the cause and effect here. He waits for the Lord, the Lord draws him up, and then he puts a new song In his mouth. And that song is then told forth. That song is then sung, if you will. And the singing or preaching of that song, the gospel, transforms the world. And many are brought into this new reality. So this new song is a metaphor for the eternal gospel. The the book of Revelation talks about the eternal gospel. That is, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom is never changing from age to age, but it affects man and it has the same content in every generation. Though it's contextualized, though certain elements might be amplified, this song, this eternal gospel, is the way by which many see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so this is speaking about a new reality that is going on. We saw in Hebrews how the Hebrew writer summarized the Old Covenant ceremonies and symbols. And he said that when Christ came into the world, he announced something, And that annunciation, that proclaiming of the new way or the new song set aside which was old. And so I believe that this is actually kind of a hint to us of what is going on the rest of the psalm. And it's exactly this that we see in verse 4. Just as other psalms do, Uh, Other psalms actually begin with, blessed is the man. If you've ever read Psalm 1, you might remember, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or in in the wicked. Uh, Psalm 119 talks about blessings being on the one who reads the law of God, who trusts the law of God, who searches it out. Indeed, even the next psalm in this book, verse 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. And so in verse 4, we see something that is deeply indicating that this is the new song that this psalmist is speaking about. This psalm, therefore, is a psalm of instruction, like we've seen week in, week out, that David or the, the author of this psalm is speaking to the people. It's not just a psalm which praises God, as wonderful as those psalms are. It is a psalm which has an intended audience of other people. And if you read this psalm, if you listened while it was read, and as you focus on these verses, these are words that are said to other humans. Now, at some point, we're going to get to a prayer of, the, of the, the the speaker, and that prayer is directed to God. But most of these verses are said for our edification, our understanding. So this psalm is not just about Christ. It's spoken by Christ. That is, he is the author. He is the speaker He's the preacher of this psalm. Jesus then says, spiritually speaking, that blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. This is exactly how many of the psalms begin. They begin with a commendation of blessing on the one who obeys God's word. He then goes on to say, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your wondrous thoughts toward us. You see, his audience, the, the, the people that he's speaking about, are really the people. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. Christ is therefore not just telling of the happiness of those who trust in God. He's saying that he is the one who trusts in God. You see, whenever you see, blessed is the man, you can substitute, Christ is the man. Christ is the one who puts his trust in the Lord. He then speaks of God's wondrous deeds, which are beyond all telling. And it might help us at some point to just press into the text and ask a question. If God has multiplied his deeds such that they are not able to be told, how can he say that he is going to tell of them? That is to say, I believe that it is necessary that we identify Christ as the author of this psalm, because if it is David, how can David tell of an infinitely great number of God's wondrous deeds? Look at this closely. He says, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The only way we can understand this is if we understand that this is Christ who is promising to continue to tell forth by his gospel the mercy of God in his wonderful deed. That is, it takes an infinitely good teacher, right? Christ said, do not call one another good, do not call one another teacher, for you have one teacher. He is the teacher who is able to tell forth the infinitely great goodness of God's deed. And he then begins to do that. And we're going to see that immediately in the next few verses. (laughs) Though God's mercies are infinite in number and perfection, all of them, every single grace of God that is applied to man streams forth from Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. That is to say, any grace that you have ever experienced, any blessing, any benefit, all of it was purchased by your perfect mediator who not only secured eternal redemption, but also purchased for you a treasury of grace, which is open by his power of his spirit to all those who would come to put their trust in him. And so, although God's deeds are manifold toward his people, all of them issue forth from the cross of Christ, as we are about to see. Look very closely. He says, I will proclaim. Notice that for a second. Just keep that in the back of your mind. I will proclaim. And then we see the core of this psalm. He says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Has this ever perplexed you? That God commanded in the law that they offer offerings, and then you read Psalm 40, or you read Hebrews 10, and you hear God has not required them. Does this ever Does anybody else get confused by this? I believe that there is a truth that God wants us to search out. It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And by the way, you are supposed to be a king. You are called to be a kingdom of priests together. And so it is our glory to search these things out. The reason why it is not required for these things, although it is commanded, is there is a difference of the perspective of necessity. That is to say that God in his law gave a command, and that command was to be obeyed. But the reason he gave that command was not to take away sin. The reason he gave the command for the offerings to be given was that through the offerings, the people of God would come to understand this is the result of sin. Sin brings death, and if we are to come back to God, there must be an atonement. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying, that there is a reminder every year. That cycle of year in, year out, the Day of Atonement, was to teach the people of God. It was supposed to be, as Paul says, the law is supposed to be our tutor or our instructor to lead us to Christ. The idea is this, that as an Israelite going on day by day, searching the scriptures, understanding, hey, there's never any real solution to sin. We're going to be here next year. That the law is supposed to train me to look for a final atonement. That it's supposed to teach me the offerings that are given according to the law cannot satisfy. That sin is never put away. I'm never truly changed. I'm merely waiting for Christ to come. That's exactly what the reading in Hebrews tells us. Though God commanded offerings to teach Israel about the severity of sin, none of them ever removed sin. It was a putting off, it's a kicking the can down the road, if you will. And that kicking the can down the road has to end at some point. So the commandments of God to provide offerings were never required. That is, they were not essentially necessary although it was required that they obey God. These offerings were not accomplishing something and they were not necessary in that regard. By this, therefore, we see the great love that Christ has for his father, that that the Hebrew writer tells us that these are the words of Christ, that Christ was speaking forth these words even as he came in the incarnation. Though Christ himself is fully divine, Being perfectly obedient to the Father, he is right to call his Father God. I love this aspect about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that because Jesus Christ is not only fully divine, but also a man, he calls God, my God. That is to understand that Christ is as a man, perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, setting aside his will in his earthly ministry and life and receiving the will of the Father. Look at this closely in verse 7 and verse 8. He says, behold, I have come in the scroll of your book. It is written about me. I delight to do your will. He does not say, I delight to do my will. He does not say, I delight to do our corporate will, but rather that Jesus Christ makes the Father's will his will by loving the Father and accepting the mission that he is sent on. Christ does all of this because he has great love for the Father, but not simply love for the Father, but also he has true knowledge being a party to the eternal covenant of redemption that what this is going to accomplish will be beautiful and glorious and worth giving up his life for. This is what the New Testament talks about. It says that Christ considered the joy which was set before him so that he despised the shame but endured the cross because of the joy. He had true knowledge of what his cross was going to accomplish, namely what he is speaking by the Spirit of God in this very psalm, that there is going to be an intended effect, that he is going to see the reward of his sufferings, that he will receive the people that he is truly purchasing here. The father's will is not just that he would die, but that that death would accomplish the sanctification of a people. That is, Christ is offering up blood. He is trading blood for me, as that song we sing from time to time tells us. He offers up his body in the place of an atonement for the people of God who cannot come to God apart from that atonement. And though it came at such a personal cost to himself, Christ delights to tell us. That's why we sang this song this morning. I'll never know how much it cost. Even though this psalm shows us the depth of the beauty of Christ's suffering and offering of himself, his very life, his blood, Even though we might be able to probe it in a small way, we can never exhaustively know the glory of it. We can never know truly how much it costs Christ to not just die bodily, but to suffer as he did, as we're about to see. It is precisely this message which is the first word on Christ's mind to his people as he says this. In verse 9, he says, I have told. Remember this earlier? Remember I told you to remember? Maybe you don't remember I told you to remember. In verse 5, he says, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. He says, I'm going to proclaim your great mercy to your people. He then describes the crucifixion and the purpose of his incarnation. The entire purpose of his mission is laid out verse by verse. And then he says in verse 10, Verse 9, excuse me, I have told the glad news. These are supposed to be, you know, warning signs, uh, highlighted words, underlined. In, in the, On a computer, you can have text that blinks at you. The Psalms can't do that. They were written on parchment. They were written on scrolls. They were passed down through the ages. The way in which God's word gets a hold of us is by oftentimes by putting like a like a hamburger, buns on both sides and meat in the middle. This is what the psalm is doing. He's saying, I will tell of your mighty deeds. Then we hear about the offering up of the body, which is done by the servant of Yahweh according to Yahweh's will. And then he says, I have told. He says, I will tell it. He then says something. And then he says, I have told of your great news. The point is that this psalm is kind of, zeroing in, it's focusing in on the offering up of the body of Christ according to the will of the Father. He then goes on to say, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Over and over again, this psalmist, the one who's speaking, who I believe to be Christ by the Spirit as Hebrews teaches us, that Christ himself is saying, I will tell them, he then tells them, and then he says, I have told them. And to make it all the more effective and confirm the glory of the gospel, he then goes on to say, I have spoken of your faithfulness, I have not hidden your deliverance. He uses words to multiply our ability to understand the greatness of God's grace in the gospel. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a diamond. A diamond is one stone, and yet through uh, time and through uh, forces of the earth, it has become, you know carbon, which is pencil lead, and it has become diamond. And then an artisan, someone who understands geometry and beauty and aesthetics, he takes that stone and he grinds it down and shapes it such that light would enter the stone and then explode in a million directions. That we would be able to see the beauty of the nature of that stone as it shows forth light. That is what this psalmist who is Christ is doing. He's saying that God's mercy is deliverance and salvation, restoration. All of these ideas that he is not hiding it, but he is telling forth it just as christ promised i will proclaim and tell of them so also he has told not only does christ satisfy the will of the father though it cost his life he is pleased to tell his people this is something that often troubles young christians how can christ truly love me if it was my sin that put him to death how can god really accept me if i am the reason why he had to die brothers and sisters i want you to see clearly Christ would not use such glorious words to describe God's salvation if he had any hint of bitterness. Christ bears his wounds and scars with love. The reason why John sees the lamb as if slain in the revelation is because that was the revelation that God gave to Christ to give to John. The understanding of Jesus Christ as the one who has made perfect atonement is God's love gift to his people. He does not remember at all his sufferings with any sort of disdain or bitterness over what he has suffered, but rather he says, this is my joy. This is my delight. I want to pour forth speech to the people of God that they would know his great mercy indeed. Christ has told forth the gospel in the great congregation because his blood speaks a better word. We saw this in Hebrews that God's that the blood of God's atonement, that is the Lamb of God, is a blood which speaks. That is the mercy of Jesus Christ in offering up his blood was to secure a attorney, if you will, in the throne room of God, in the courtroom of heaven, that as the saints were accused day and night by the evil one, that there would be a greater advocate, and that would be the eternal living blood poured out by the Lamb. So after telling of God's salvation, the address of Christ, the speech of Christ, radically changes its focus. Think of how great all of the words have been so far about Jesus Christ's offering and how he's said, I'm going to tell them, and then he tells them, and then he says, I have told them. And then we take a sharp left, if you will, in the psalm, metaphorically speaking. That that is, something happens in verse 11 and 12 indicates that the time or the the manner of what he's speaking about is changing. Everything so far has been telling forth of the gospel. It's been prophesying forward in time, that is, that the, the psalmist speaking by the Spirit of God is telling forth of what Christ will do, and then he moves back a little bit to before it's accomplished. He turns now at this point to show Christ's trust in the midst of his plight. He says, verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy toward me. Do you see these words, as for you? See, he's addressing a people. He's addressing and telling them about what he's going to do and what it will accomplish. And then he uses some words to kind of transition. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. I want you to see the contrast here between all of the deliverance and the the delight, the salvation, the faithfulness, the steadfast love, all of that is toward the congregation. And then he moves and he starts to begin to speak about something radically different. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. How would we understand this other than that Christ is being considered apart from the congregation? See, as we approach Lent and Holy Week this year, it's important for you to see the nature of Christ's crucifixion, not just in the physical sense of his suffering, but also the spiritual sense of his suffering. And here we see the very beginning elements that Christ is considered apart from the congregation. He says that God will be faithful to the congregation, and yet this verse is saying, you won't restrain your mercy from me. Why would he need to say that unless he was a part of that group? He's, there's a change in audience. There's a change in topic. Over and over again, we see in this psalm how Christ contri- continued in trusting himself. Each one of these statements to God, saying, you will not be faithless, you will not restrain your mercy, you will not take away your grace from me. Each one of these is told that we would be able to, by the Spirit, understand what was the heart of Christ on the cross. He goes on to say, you will not uh, remove your steadfast love or your faithfulness from me. They will preserve me. First Peter tells us that Christ continued entrusting himself. The idea is this, it's not just a state of being in which Jesus has merely resolved and he is persisting in resolution of faith towards God on the cross. He is one who over and over again, his heart was constantly choosing, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to endure because I know what's coming on the other side. Trust in God, therefore, as we understand from the scriptures, is never more beautifully seen than in the face of adversity. Returning very briefly to that notion of the diamond, the diamond is Wonderfully beautiful and it captures light and it reveals light it multiplies light and and scatters it such that it takes White light or natural light and turns it into a rainbow. There are colors which issue forth from it But whenever you want to see a diamond if you ever go diamond shopping, you'll see this very clearly They're They're excellent at this. They put the diamond on a backdrop of black The reason why is to show the contrast, that you might be able to see, oh, this is shining forth, this is luminous, this is full of light, and yet adversity is exactly the backdrop here for the faithfulness of Christ. Think about every story in the scripture in which the faithfulness of the individual is promoted. Look at Joseph alone in Genesis. He is shown as the one who is trusting in the promises of God, that he will be uh, brought up to a good place, and yet Joseph is first surrounded by his brothers who steal his precious coat, and then they throw him in a pit, and then give him over to Egyptian slave traders, and then he goes and works in somebody's house, and then is thrown in jail, falsely accused of adultery, and then from there he is exalted finally to Pharaoh. The point is black backdrop, pure white diamond. This is what the psalmist is doing for us. And in fact, this is exactly part of the nature of the cross of Christ. That Christ was persistent in continuing to choose the Father. That is, in this psalm, knowing what takes place on the cross, we see awe-inspiring beauty. We see beauty of Jesus' person and work such that it captivates our hearts, that we're, that we're undone with the beauty, and we can only respond in adoration to the Father. He says in verse 12, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Can you, can you understand they are more than the hairs of my head? Have you ever tried to count your hair? The reason it's called hair and not hairs is because there are so many hairs that it is worth considering them as a collective whole. And so he's saying that the evils which are surrounding me are more than can be counted. What is this contrast to? The great mercies of God earlier in this psalm. He says, I will tell of them, though they are more than can be counted. And so here these these evils which surround him, which encompass him, which overtake him are more than he can see. They're more than than he can count. Jesus, therefore, was not just abandoned by his disciples. He was surrounded by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, probably some of the Essenes, and the, the scribes, those who were persistent in accusing him, seeking his life, as well as the Romans. I want you to think about whenever you've been alone if if you've ever faced a time where you have been abandoned by family or rejected by your friends, this is what Christ went through. All of his disciples that he lived with for three and a half years and knew probably before that, all of them left, even the ones that promised especially not to. Christ was completely forsaken by his devoted followers, not just the twelve, Although the Gospels do not highlight this, there were also a great number of others who followed them. Some women, according to Mark, and everyone is gone. Everyone leaves. Everyone flees. But it is not just that, brothers and sisters. He was not just abandoned by his friends. He was also surrounded by enemies, enemies that, according to the Gospels, were seeking to kill him every day of his life in his public ministry, that after certain events, it says in John, from that day, they were seeking to put him to death. He's surrounded by his enemies, those who attempt to kill him. So evil was this company of people that David records in Psalm 22. He records the death of the son of God as one who is like an animal thrown to wild beasts. If you ever want to get a picture of the severity of the cross, We'll see it in Psalm 22. The point is that he was completely taken and surrounded by evil. But furthermore, these evils describe the manifold punishments and judgments against sin. It is not just that on a human level or on a solical level, he was surrounded by evil people who were trying to kill him and indeed did. He also received the judgment of sin. That is the judgment of sin for his people And that sin and iniquity is translated in this passage as my iniquities. But it is important to know that from the original language, the word that is translated as my iniquities has no possessive quality. What am I saying? I'm saying that Jesus Christ is counted as sin, not such that he has committed sin himself. It is not guilt that he owns, but rather guilt that is conferred upon him. That is the nature of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. This dual exchange that takes place in the gospel is, is pictured forth in this verse. Christ voluntarily and willingly receives the guilt of his people such that he can call them Mine not in such a way that he is accused of committing them himself but rather that he takes that guilt and he receives it upon himself and though he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree he was overtaken by them you see the cup which christ prays might pass from him in gethsemane he says if it be if it be possible let this cup pass from me. The father then answers him, no, it's not possible. Christ responds, and he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. Brothers and sisters, there is not one drop left of the wrath of God against sin. Christ drank it all. He completely emptied the wrath of God for his people. The imagery in this psalm is telling us this, that is, he is one who is surrounded and overcome by sins this imagery is like a sea of transgressions we see this in the life of jonah and in fact jesus himself said that the sign of jonah is given to the generation at his time what is the sign of jonah the sign of jonah is that jonah went down under the waters that god's trans, the transgressions of god's people were conferred upon this one All the while, even while being surrounded, not just by human enemies, not just by enemies of spirit and any sort of demonic activity that was attempting to torment him. We know that he successfully warred against Satan in the wilderness. I'm sure that he also continued to persist in that fight on the cross, not just on a human level, not just on a solical level, but he himself bore the wrath of God against sin. And this is where we connect with the Psalm that he did this all the while persisting in faithfulness to God. That is, while Christ was receiving the wrath of God against sin on the cross, he did not become embittered to the Father, nor did he lose heart. Even though he goes down under the weight of these transgressions, he bears them completely. He was persistent in trusting the Father. Verse 13 highlights this, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And after praying that God would bring ruin on those who seek his life, and I believe that this is an imprecatory nature of the psalm. He's he's asking for judgment on the powers of evil. That he then goes on to pray for god 's people while he suffers, verse sixteen, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. you see this this offering that that Christ makes on the cross is kind of, it meets its corollary in the Gospels when he's praying, you know, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. There were certain ones among the scribes, the Pharisees, probably indeed even certain ones among the Romans who saw his glory and then were successfully converted by the Spirit later. And the reason that is possible, understanding the nature of the cross, is that all men are guilty of the cross of Christ. In a real way, all men who come to know Christ were the ones who put him there. It was not just the Romans. It was not just the Jews. It was all of those who have sinned. He then prays for them. May they come to see your salvation. But as we come to the end of this psalm, we have to pause. And the reason we have to pause is because there is something completely unexpected. Remember back to verse one, that verse one was kind of a summary of the psalm, that God was being gracious to this one. He says, I waited patiently. He inclined to me and heard my cry. But as we move through the psalm, we find something totally unexpected. Most songs end with a dominant chord. If you've ever heard a song that doesn't earn with resolving the melody, it leaves you kind of set on edge for the rest of the day. It's kind of like if you're reading a book and you see a parenthesis and there's no matching parenthesis, the rest of your day is ruined. right? You, have you ever had that problem? I have that in, in computer code. If you do that, it's a disaster. The point is this, that this psalm has a summary of, I waited on the Lord, he, he heard me, and he rescued me but we see something completely different. It's like a song that doesn't resolve its melody. It's like a song that doesn't end well. It ends on a minor chord in the wrong place. It's like a story that doesn't have a happy ending. Think about all of the fables that you might've heard as a child or tell to your children. All of them normally end with a good ending, right? The plot is resolved, everything takes place, the dilemma is undone, The narrative arc closes, and they all lived happily ever after. But brothers and sisters, this psalm is saying something about what it doesn't say at the end. Although the introduction tells us of God's rescue and the great future of the people of God, none of that, absolutely none of that, is in view in these last two verses. The psalm simply ends with Christ reminding the Father of his great dependence on him. He says in verse 17 at the close of the psalm, as for me, I am poor and needy. Certainly that is the state of Christ on the cross. He had all of his robes and garments stolen from him. He was beaten beyond any possible recovery. He was crucified, strung up on a gibbet, as a public testimony that he is being considered by his society as a murderer. You see, the two thieves who were crucified along with him, they they say, we deserve to be there, but he has done nothing wrong. Christ is surely the one who is poor and needy. He then goes on to say, but the Lord takes thought for me. And then that that really can be considered to be speaking to us, but these last few words... You are my help. This is talking to God. You are my help. Do not delay, oh my God. You see, what this psalm is doing for us is it's giving us a vision. It's giving us a spiritual understanding of the heart of Jesus Christ. We are left hanging thematically at the end of this psalm. It doesn't resolve because the end of the cross is not in view. That is, there is no resolution in this moment. Why? Because the psalmist is intending to show the heart of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ completely offered himself up in trust to the very end. You see, Christ was not just crucified. Christ was killed. He was murdered. He was murdered for things that he did not do and the murder of christ by the romans and the jews was used by god to bring about a great and wonderful redemption for the people of god however none of that isn't the end of this psalm the reason why is because the psalmist intends to show us something that the gospels really just hint at that christ was completely trusting the father every moment christ did not merely need to suffer and be crucified he had to die and it is it is as if by the eyes of faith, we can hear the heart of Christ saying, Father, you're going to rescue me. What was the cry of the people around the cross? They said, let the Lord deliver him for he delights in him. He saved others, let him save himself. And yet through this Psalm, we see the final words of Christ that as he is dying, as he is going down, as he is about to breathe his last, the father's gonna rescue me. The father is going to rescue me. He's going to, he's going to bring me back up. Brothers and sisters, that is why this psalm ends with the final word. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay. That is why Christ offers up and pours out his soul even unto death. And after that, he is just left. He's dead. He's, he's hanging on the cross. That is where the story ends for a time namely for, for three days. Now that is where this psalm ends, but we know the rest of the story, thanks be to God. Amen. It does not end with the cross, although this psalm ends with the cross. It revived, He's revived. He's brought back to life. This is what we celebrate every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does the psalm end this way? Because it shows us the true nature of our religion. It shows us the true nature of our faith. Religion is a good word when used in a good way. We do not simply have a relationship with God. That relationship with God that we have been brought into is based on, predicated upon, built on the foundation of the relationship of the Son to His Father. That is to say, we are not just saved by our faith in Christ. Although that is necessary, it is necessary to respond to the gospel with faith in trust to the God who saves. But we have been saved, brothers and sisters, by the faith of Jesus Christ. That is, as he was dying, he was entrusting himself to his father. And before your faith or my faith is ever considered in the equation, all of it is done based on the faith of Jesus and although this psalm closes with the final prayer of christ we know absolutely clearly that the father vindicated his son and raised him to life but it is important to see the full nature of the extent of his death and suffering peter then quotes this in acts 2 and i'm going to read it and i'm going to i'm going to translate some words just to put this in the voice of christ therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwell securely, for you did not abandon my soul to Sheol, and you did not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter interprets this psalm as speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that although Christ died in perfect trust, the Father vindicated him completely and raised him to life, not only vindicated him, but showed him the path of life. That is, the father was active in raising his son back from the dead. And it is exactly that that we are basing our faith and trust in. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would create within us a heart that would behold, apprehend, lay hold of the beauty of your son as he is on the cross. Lord, we thank you so much for the offering which your son gave for us, that we might become united in a death like his unto the hope of being raised in a resurrection like his. Lord, we thank you for the great atonement that he made. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, sprinkle his blood upon our hearts, that we would truly be able to perceive and trust in and cling to the righteous work that your son did, and that by doing that, you would make us into new people. Lord, we pray that you would confirm this in us and that you would mature us such that the cross of Christ and his resurrection becomes the center point of not just the story of your word, not just the story of a time like Lent and Easter, but indeed, God, that it would be the center of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.